Well, God, we thank you so much that you're here and you're at work and we're about to bust open your word and we give you thanks that you want to grow us up. Anyone else with me in that word of thanks? He is a good God. In Jesus' name, let it be. Give the team a hand today, guys. I was interviewed this week by an atheist for his YouTube channel. Sometime this next week, my interview with him is going to come out onto a channel that has many, many thousands of people who get a, get a taste of this. It was an incredible, incredible opportunity for me. I was prayed up, and I was trusting that the Lord was going to give me the words to say. And in true form, he gave me a list of questions to prep me with, and then he threw me a couple of curveballs that weren't on the list of questions. And that's okay, because I really sense that the Holy Spirit gave me the direction and the words that I needed in that moment. One question that he asked me near the end of the interview was, Pastor Clausen, do you believe that the end of time is near? It just so happens that about two days prior to this, God had allowed me providentially, and I need you to hear me, I believe that God works this way, God had allowed me providentially to read an article off Drudge Report just a couple days prior. And if you ever watch Drudge Report, it's gone through iterations of conservative liberalism, kind of middle of the road. It's kind of a mixed bag of stuff now. But the Drudge Report has all kinds of headlines, many headlines, and you can click on them. And one of them said, the end of the world will come in 2040. Well, I always love to see that stuff, being a pastor and getting old. I want to know when the end of the world's going to come. So I clicked on that article, and I was intrigued with this finding. So let me take you back, because this is what I answered my atheist friend in this interview before I went into any of my positions or my biblical postulations on the end of time. I said, it's funny that you asked me this, Franklin, because I just saw this article on Drudge Report, and you can be a garden variety atheist and hold to this reality that the end of the world is near. And he said, really? I said, absolutely. Because in 1972, a team of scientists at MIT, that's Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a very high-brow, high-learning academy, stated that human society is on a path for self-destruction by 2040. This came out in 1972. The study, called Limits to Growth, used computer modeling to attempt to predict when the world would collapse. The MIT researchers determined that self-inflicted apocalypse would end the world as we know it by 2040. Now, comes Gaia Harrington, a Dutch sustainability researcher, a really sharp woman, advisor to the Club of Rome, and it's the Club of Rome that started this study that MIT founded in 1972. Club of Rome is just a bunch of high-level ambassadors, presidents, kings, different people in a power that got together this study back in 72. But Gaya Harrington came come on the scene, and she kind of went back into this and said, what did they find, and does it have any legs for today? And she found that this is Gaya Harrington, doesn't claim to be a Jesus follower at all, Humanity is right on track for the world to collapse by 2040, as long as we continue the business as usual. Now, you need to know something. There were like 10 keys or variables that 
factored into this analysis and created this metric for which they made this prediction. It was population, it was industrial output, fertility rates, persistent pollution levels, food production, mortality rates, services, non-renewable resources, human welfare, and ecological footprint. But what's intriguing to me, and this is what I want to pour my heart out to you about, is that this study did not include any of the two major variables that I look at today. Homogeny is the and one variable that I think many people leave out to our own peril. Hegemonic states or totalitarian states is one of the variables that was not included in this study from MIT. Uh, hegemonic or hegemony just simply means that there's someone who's the head of, it's a very popular term now and it's used in, heavily in any kind of thought material. But hegemonic states are totalitarian states or groups of people so it can be President Xi over China, but it can also be because we have a very hegemonic society here in America that although we are one nation under God, indivisible, we have a lot of little tribes now increasing in our country that are little hegemonies, as it were. They've got leaders in them, and they've got flags that they fly, and they may not be the American flag, but they're real. By the way, that doesn't freak me out at all. Our God is big, our God is mighty, we're okay. But it did not include in this prediction for 2040 all this hegemony or hegemonic states that are all across the globe right now. With all their egos and everything, you see Putin trying to flex muscle, and you got to ask the question, what's the, what's the skin in the game? And the skin in the game is power. And if he sniffs weakness, man, he's going to pounce. So the question is, what's happening? Well, what's happening is you got a broken world full of sin, and it is... A miracle, and can I say this now? I hadn't even prepared this in my outline, but i got to say this. We know in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of sin. I'll tell you right now, you take the factor of the Holy Spirit out of this world equation, and you have got sudden collapse, guaranteed. But there's one other factor that wasn't the calculus of the MIT researchers, and it's this one. There are social constructs and social mores, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's just sexual identity and what constitutes marriage and all these things. There are social constructs and social mores that have never survived in localized people groups that are now expanding internationally. I'm not going to get into this except to say this great experiment has never worked in history. The greatest societies have utterly collapsed when we've gone kind of off the rails into societal mores that are inconsistent with the Word of God. And now we're adopting these internationally. And you've got hegemonic leaders around the globe, and you've got powder kegs, and on top of it, we've got World War I, World War II potentiality now with bombs that can take out large sectors of society with one wingnut pushing the button. You add all that up, 2040 looks a long way out. I've got a friend that is publishing a new book. This is the manuscript. He sent it to Janan and I. He's one of the most brilliant men I know. It's called Shabuah Millennium. Shabuah Millennium. Shabu is the Hebrew word for seven. And this is what 
Paul Wozniak has concluded, let me be very calculated here, I need you to listen to me really closely. If you look at prophecy, and we will in a new series that I'm beginning today, and I soon will get to it, hang on. If you look at prophecy, you will see that most, if not every really scholarly end-time theologian believes that we are nearing the millennium of rest. Shabuah is seven, and it means rest. Numbers mean things in the scriptures. Shabuah millennium only means that we're going to go through this period of time for six millennium, and we know that we're almost there. If you look at the chronology in the book of Matthew, the only thing we do not know is when the fall of man happened. That's all we don't know. You remove the fall of man in that calculus, and you've got a bandwidth of, be careful here, is Pastor Carl ever going to say that the Lord is coming on this day or this year? I will never do that. But I will tell you I agree with Paul's premise. He believes that there is no possible way you can do the math, and math matters in the Word of God and get us anywhere past 2,000, 2,127, and he says it will end long before 2,127. He said absolute certainty. We will not know the world as we currently see it. By the way, be very careful with this. I'm not going into this, woo, let's go to the mountaintop, let's sell everything and get into a bunker. No, 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 no. That's crazy talk. No, no, we're salt and light. We have the gospel. But this notion that this thing's just going to go on and on and on with all ten of these factors from Gaya Harrington and the Dutch sustainability researcher who looked at the original MIT report, and then you throw in hegemonic states and social constructs and social mores that never worked anywhere. And how in the world is this going to work internationally? And the answer is, it ain't. How's that good for a, the how's that for a theological term? It ain't going to work. But we got a big God, and he's a loving God. And some people ask me, Pastor Carl, why hasn't God returned yet? I need you to hear me. When people say God is judging a people, God's judging people, stop that nonsense talk. I need you to hear me. Whenever God is delayed in coming, it is because he is extending mercy still. Whoever will may come. Don't be one of these Christians that sees a natural disaster for which we live in natural law and says, oh, that's God's judgment. Or you'll wind yourself, wind up apologizing like some of my theologian friends have had to do in the last few decades. But rather, we live differently. See, the big question isn't how we will survive. The question is, how is God going to enable us to thrive as the end is drawing near? That's the question. Don't get caught up in this, how are we going to get our country back? Shine that. It's, it's gone, baby. It ain't coming back. And we never had it anyway. Enter Daniel. We begin a new series today entitled Unshaken from the book of Daniel. Now I want to tell you that from Daniel we're going to piece together a timeline that is going to allow us to look in, verse, in chapter 7 through the end, chapter 7 through 12, we're going to look at some end times prophecy. Because some of the writing in Daniel is apocalyptic. It's very much foretelling of what's going to be coming. 
And I'm going to actually yield this teaching podium on one and a half Sundays to a guy named Jim Coakley. And he's going to come up here and he is going to teach like a mad dog on some of these prophecies that are told of in Daniel. Now be careful for those of you that want to do the math and figure out exactly when it's going to be. Daniel himself was told by God, you are not going to know. Some of these are going to be a mystery. But when it happens, then we're going to look back and go, Shazam! Look at that! (laughs) It was all there all the time. It's going to be a really cool ride. But know this, children of God. God's got us in his hands. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. I want to tell you a little bit about Daniel before we get into this message today. When you piece together the timeline of Daniel in his writing, you can understand where Daniel got his courage. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Any of you that were raised in Sunday school, you heard that over and over again. But Daniel was a contemporary of my favorite king. If you look at the chronology of the exile, and we're going to get into this, I'm going to break it down as we read through 20-some verses this morning. I'm going to do commentary along the way. This historical book is amazing. And this is one of the rarest books taught by rabbis. Do you know why it's rarely taught by rabbis? Because it's translated from Aramaic. It's the one book in the Old Testament that isn't strictly Hebrew. Big chunks of it are written in Aramaic. And so a lot of rabbis, I talked with a good friend of mine this week, Omer Eshel, we were talking about this book and he said many rabbis never touch the book of Daniel because they don't know Aramaic. So it's rarely taught by rabbis, but we are going to open it up today because it's got some incredible foretelling and tells us how to live strong. Now here's what's really cool. Daniel I was always wondering, where does this guy get his courage? But if you put the timeline together, you'll realize Daniel was about 13 years old when my favorite king perished. Josiah was a righteous man, and his entire generation was spared because he lived so holy and upright before the Lord. Now we know that the entire nation under Manasseh and Ammon, that's Josiah's grandpa and daddy, They were despicable dudes. They were burning their firstborn children on the molten arms of Baal in the valley just outside Jerusalem. I mean, it was an awful mess. So Daniel is a contemporary of Josiah. And as we're going to see here in a moment, and i got a boogie here. I'm going to put my track shoes on. We're going to see here in a moment that Josiah had such impact on these young men that they were learned men. They were good-looking men, but they were learned men, handsome dudes. They probably were at the gym quite a lot. They were beefcakes, and they were highly respected, and they were very knowledgeable guys. They were super respected. And let me give you some other thoughts here. I've got so much in my heart. Uh Uh-oh. I suspect that When they were exiled, in the initial exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the the names that were given, those are the Babylonian names that were given to them. I suspect that they took the godliest and smartest to extract them from Jehoiakim, who was the king, and he was a wretched son of Josiah. I think Nebuchadnezzar was cool with leaving a, what he thought was a compromised king, kind of just a spiritual putz, leave him there, 
take out all the godly dudes that are really smart, and it's kind of like brain drain. It's like, let's get the smart guys and the righteous guys out of the country. Then we don't even have to go occupy it because they're all just going to be a bunch of dingleberries doing stupid stuff. So that's, in layman's terms, that's where we find ourselves. But Josiah had an impact. He was such a righteous dude. Uh, Daniel was somewhere between 13 and 14 when the party came to a crashing end. And so this message today is titled Standing Tall, Standing Tall. And today I want to take you to the first chapter of Daniel. Follow along as I read this whole bad boy and I'm going to make some comments along the way. In the third year, this is 607 B.C., by the way, 607 B.C., of the reign of Jehoiakim, of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Oh, let me just make some quick comments here. Babylon, does anyone know where it is? Let me tell you where it is. The ruins are about 50 miles exactly due south from Baghdad. Baghdad is on the Tigris. Babylon was on the Euphrates. And don't you think that's an epicenter of world events? You go to Genesis chapter 2, you see Tigris and Euphrates. You go to Revelation 9, you see Tigris and Euphrates. This book matters. I got to keep moving. So it's in Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Look that up. You'll see why he was the chief of anything right there. To bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That was the local language. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. It should be, you emphasize the last syllable there, Zar, Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. That's how they got their names. Verse 8, everything changes. Watch this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the use are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. That's what you need to know. Stop right here. We'll go to verse 11 again. King Nebuchadnezzar is ruthless. 
This guy would kill anyone in a second. Beheadings were routine. This was Iron Fist Central. This was brutal regime. I mean, these guys were tough. They were strong. They were warriors. And they, were, they would tear you limb from limb to the four corners of the earth, killing people and taking body parts. These guys invented this stuff. Whew. He was scared to death. He's like, I can't have you eat a new diet. If you eat a new diet, you start looking like, you know, you're kind of going down a little bit compared to the king's guys. I am a dead man. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said this, verse 12, watch this. Test your servants for 10 days. What a bold dude. He's probably 17 or 18 years old, guys. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Stop there. Some people call this the Daniel fast. It's not. It's the Daniel diet. Daniel never fasted. You might do a Daniel fast. Daniel would say right now, you're fasting? That's the way I lived. It's true. Now the Daniel fast is an interesting fast. And the reason he didn't want to have the meat was probably associated with the fact that it was being sacrificed to false gods, so now it's defiled meat. You can't even make it into beef jerky and make it palatable to Daniel. So he's like, I can't eat this meat, man. This is bad news. So what did he eat? He ate what they ate a lot, vegetables and water. Is it always fun? No. I, I, I'm going to mention this on the fly. My bride knows where I'm going to go right now. Last night she plopped down a meal in front of me, and I'm like, oh, God, give me the grace to eat this thing. She's a great cook. But this thing was so clean eaten. I mean, Brussels sprouts with flax oil and light butter and a little bit of salt, those were actually digestible. But it was like, whoo, this plate, man, I got like sprouted things. No kidding, sprouts and all kinds of other quinoa rice with all kinds of special stuff in it. Man, it made my hair turn red overnight, guys. Isn't that weird? <laughs> kidding you. If you're a guest here, it always is this way. Did you know that Rick Warren took his church through the Daniel diet as a Daniel fast, and they went for 90 days, and 15,000 people lost, wait for it now, 250,000 pounds. That was in 2011. Imagine seeing that sitting on the side of the road. What's that? That's uh, Rick Warren's church's weight loss. 250,000 pounds of lard, man. Wow. So he says, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let them be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Verse 13, then let our appearance and the appearance of use who eat your king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, this is what's cool. He appealed to the steward, one down below this chief eunuch. So he's going down, not up in rank, and so he's got a sidebar meeting. He's going, I promise you, man, we are going to look so much better than these guys. These guys are going to look like poofters compared to us when we're done. So the steward goes, wow, verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. 
Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Don't you love that? Than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now everybody's on the Daniel diet. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Don't think it's not directly related to what we just read. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. This is this ruthless dude. And among them, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. That means they had a place of honor, guys. Daniel, let me forecast, would soon be third in command in this country. What? And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. He lived with prosperity in a godless, wretched land. Until he was 70. Yeah. 50 plus years. Daniel lived in Babylon. 50 air miles from Baghdad. Same bloodline of people. Same ruthless vibe toward outsiders. How in the world did this happen? The answer is he stood tall. Right from the get-go, young Daniel stood tall. And you might say, well, Carl, he's Daniel. Daniel is like you and me. In fact, if Daniel were here today, he might say, you know, my uh, forefather David uh, wrote a song that you guys sing, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And you know what Daniel would say? And you guys don't have to sing that. Because the Holy Spirit never leaves the indwelled follower of Jesus. Ooh, Come on now. So let me give you the real good news. It's right here. When you stand tall in the land of small gods, big things can happen. I need you to know this. Do not be a person that bunkers up. Don't look for property in South Dakota. Don't do that. We've got we to be strong. We've got to man up. We've got to woman up. And we've got to ask God, how are you going to make me a person who thrives in a post-Christian nation? Well, Carl, what are our small gods? Materialism. I think that's a dominant God. If, if there was a Moloch here with hands out and we're sacrificing things to him, I think he'd be a God called materialism. Alcoholism, still heavy duty. I've, I've thrown some of you a curveball and said, I have more of a problem with the alcohol abuse more than I do the ganja, weed, marijuana abuse. Alcohol's destroyed and wrecked way more homes than any joint has. 
And I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying we got to remember, man, alcohol's ravaged. It's beat kids to smithereens. It's split homes. It's caused head-on accidents. There are more people in Cook County medical kind of environment with Sujin, all that she knows about in the hospital across the street from her, rush from alcohol than almost any other single thing. But we still worship it. Self-gratificationism, that's a big God. Self-righteousism is a big God. Yeah, I made those up. Maybe our worst is self-worshipism. Our God is in the mirror in the morning. Don't ever let that be your God. You're too puny. So the thing I want to encourage you with before I cut us loose today is something out of the middle of this passage here I want to talk about what you stand to gain by standing tall what you stand to gain by standing tall and I want to give you four things and I want you to take them to the bank and I want you to look at the life of Daniel and know that all word is inspired by God and profitable that you may be trained for every good work this is not a story that you have for flannel graph for little kids. This is for adults too. First, you stand to gain respect by showing respect. This is a very interesting thing that we find here. Daniel comes into Babylon, and in verse 8, I'm going to read it to you. Keep the slide up there. I'm going to read it to you out of verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not devile himself with the king's food or with the wine or the drink. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. He just came and asked, Is there any chance... I could not defile myself and not eat this food. Listen to me. I don't have a fancy illustration for this. I got a big calling out for us right now, and I need you to hear me. Angry religion is dead religion. Don't become an angry Christian. Don't do it. We, we got to stop this nonsense where we're flying social flags and political flags higher than the cross of Jesus. None of those social constructs, none of those political leaders can save your life. Only Jesus can save your soul. As I'm being interviewed by this atheist, he asked me, what faith tradition were you raised in? And I told him I was raised in the faith tradition that caused me to run from Jesus. He said, really? I said, yeah, my mom and dad were full of grace and mercy, but they had us in a church environment where everybody was angry. Everybody was ticked off. It's amazing to me. People would get radically saved. They'd share their story about how they were radically saved. And then within, it seemed, a couple, three months or a couple, three years, now they're like ticked off at everything of those guys over there where they got saved from. What? And then I realized I became that. Early on in my spiritual journey, God set me free from cocaine. God set me free from Crown Royal. God set me free from me. And then, within a few months, 
I almost became like the very people that I was raised around that I didn't want to become like. And I became, I did become an angry evangelical. I remember being student body president at a Bible college and I was so angry about people that didn't fit into Carl's box. And the day I repented of that was the day that the joy of my salvation returned to me. You gain respect by showing respect. Don't be an angry Christian, friend. It ain't worth it, baby. No one's ever been saved through self-righteous Christianity. Never. Second thing I want to give you, you gain favor by trusting God. Some of us think we gain favor by sucking up. No, I want to be really straight with you right now. If we think about the world that we live in, we think about the people we interact with, we think about those that we work for or work around, sometimes we think we've got to position ourselves for God's favor. Here's what I want you to know. There's one position for God's favor in this world. This is where you get God's favor. And the minute you think, I'm going to be that guy, I'm going to be that girl, I'm going to be that person that kind of slides up alongside this boss, I'm going to say the right thing and all that. The minute you start playing that game, you are out of the realm of God's kingdom and you're now into man's kingdom and you will get your spiritual lunch eaten. What do we find? We find in verse 9, I love this little, this little verse, man, this is great, I lost it. Here it is. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Don't read that too quickly. And God gave Daniel favor. God gives favor. So if you got a choice between sucking up and surrendering, take surrender all day long. All day long. Third point. You gain victory by putting truth to the test. Yeah. Not your faith to the test. Some people go, yeah, I'm going to test God. I'm going to test. Don't, don't do that. But you can look at the truth of God's word. You can look at, in this case, dietary laws. And guess what? You can take them to the bank. I've often said it. I'll say it now. There's not one command of God that isn't inextricably linked to a promise in the bounty of God. God never says, oh, do it because I said so. He always says, do it because this is the positive thing that will come. Will it come tomorrow? I don't know, but it will happen. God's not some random, weird, dysfunctional parent who just lays down laws. He gives us laws for the purpose of taking hold of something greater. His precepts are that way. You gain victory by putting truth to the test. You go, Carl, where do you get that? It's right here, verses 10 through 13. Keep that slide up. I'll read it. It says, And the chief priests of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said, I love this, listen to this, said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs was assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants, he said. 
for 10 days. Come on. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. You know what Daniel's saying? I so believe in the precepts of God and these crazy dietary laws that we were given, I'll put them up against anyone in the king's court. Woo! How awesome is that? And we can do the same thing with God's word. You know, what I'm going to talk about right now really quick, I just need you to know, I hate talking about this, but I was talking with the elder board yesterday morning, and I'm like, guys, I hate talking about this one topic, but I'm going to take the sting out of it right now and just tell you something really cool. I'm getting older, 61. We're not doing a building program. And I don't get a salary here. I'm just like you guys. I'm a temp maker. I have another job, and I give my money to this church just like you do. Could that change down the road? Yeah, I don't know. You never want to say never, but for all the years I've been doing this, that's what the Lord's allowed. Now, I say that as a backdrop, not to pat myself on the back at all, but just to say this, and I need you to hear me. My bride and I went to, we had this great idea that we're going to take our kids when they were younger, uh, through this financial, it's Financial Peace University. And we're like, they're going to learn so much, it's going to be so good. By session two, my wife and I are going, whoa, listen to this stuff. My bride has been such a good, wow, she has been the blessing for me. I don't even know how much I make. I forget, honest to God, I don't even care. I, and I do, I forget. I could not tell you how much I make. She knows, but she has all these buckets where she puts these dollars, and she loves to give. And when we went through Ramsey's thing, we started giving even more. And I need you to hear this. I, if you're new here, don't go, man, there they go, talking about money. No. Do I talk about this a lot around here, guys? No. But this is what I need you to know. Guys, someday I'm going to be dead and gone. And if you're still living here, I need you to hear me. You can't outgive God. You can't. I, I'm telling you. We, and here's what you, you need to know. We're not wanting to, I don't want to build buildings. It would cost too stinking much in the South Loop. Are you kidding me? I would estimate it'd be 50 million bucks. Something like that. But we want to make disciples. And so I invite you into that. And know this, man. God's got great days ahead. So whatever you find in the word of God, put it to the test and he'll prove faithful. Like you can't believe. <sighs> Last one is this. You gain ground by walking out your faith. This is how you gain ground. Yep. In verse 14 and 15, let me read it to you. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. I'm just going to stop right there and tell you this because it goes on from there to talk about all the doors of opportunity that were opened. Here's what you need to know, and you got to get this right now. Don't check out on me here. Stay with me. 
when you begin to walk out your faith, Daniel did this. When he was walking out his faith, doors began to open. That's a fact. I asked my bride, I said, baby, I need an illustration for this. And she goes, oh, I got one. And it's right. She says, you know, I heard this once, and it's spot on. Have you ever driven up to a gate, and it shut, and you stopped? And your car's there, and you're idling, and the gate's not opening, and there's no code, no nothing. And then you realize, oh my goodness, I just got to keep moving. And if you just keep moving, then all of a sudden, that door starts opening. Some of you are sitting six feet back from a gate that God wants to swing open for you. And I'm telling you, get in the Word. Begin to take action according to it. And watch out, man. Doors will be opened. You say, Carl, I I don't know. How how far do I have to walk? Not far. (laughs) God is so gracious. I'm just a guy, man, and I've seen God so many times, sometimes in my pain, I don't want to move, and in my sometimes self-pity, I don't want to move, and God says, I want you to walk with me, and I turn around, and in the middle of pain and sometimes fear, I begin to walk with him, and the minute I walk, it's like, whoa! I barely got moving, God, and you're kicking open doors. That's how God works. I dare you to be a Daniel. I dare you to be a Daniel. Yeah, man. Bow your heads and let's pray. God, is it possible that you could use this story in us just week one to radically alter the direction of our life? Yes, it is, isn't it? God, I give you praise. God, I'm asking you today that you would cause us to be so captivated by the power of your Spirit, so hearing your voice, that we would gain respect by showing respect, that we would gain favor by trusting in you and you alone, that we would gain victory by putting truth to the test, and that we would gain ground by walking out our faith. God, please, pray it. And I thank you. In Jesus' name.